The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 75. The New Testament reading and sermon text is Luke 6, 37 through 45. Uh, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to these texts, uh, be it in a print version or on a phone. It doesn't matter if the text is before you. I think it will be helpful for you to follow along with uh, the sermon. And so that is just a suggestion of mine. Some might learn better by just listening intently. I understand that. But brothers and sisters, what we are about to do is so very important. The scriptures are going to be read and then they are going to be taught, uh, explained, applied. And in some ways this is the most important thing that we do on the Lord's Day. We come to worship, to give praise to God Almighty, but we come to hear from Him. We come to be instructed by Him. And indeed it is the Word of God that informs everything that we do here and it is the Word of God that is to inform everything that we do in the Christian life. So let us give our undivided attention to the reading and then the preaching of God's most holy word. Psalm 75. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, which must have been a tune, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars, say law. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let us go now to our sermon text for today, which is Luke 6:37 through 45 This is the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He gathered His disciples to Himself, and He spoke to them in this way, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, His mouth speaks. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it today. Brothers and sisters, it's been a true joy for me to study and then to teach on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, as it is traditionally called. I've been greatly edified by these teachings myself. I've come to see them as being immensely important. Here Jesus gathers His newly called disciples and His twelve apostles to Himself, and He begins to teach them. He delivers sayings to them. And you will notice that the sayings are all about attitude and outlook, resulting in a way of life. Let me repeat that. These sayings are all about attitude and outlook, resulting in a way of life. The Christian faith, you have heard me say, is a way of life, brothers and sisters, and to live In the way that Christ has commanded, we must perceive the world and think according to God's Word. If we are to live in the way that God has called us to live, we must must have a particular mindset. We must have a particular outlook or attitude. Our lifestyle is indeed going to flow from our mindset and the attitude of our heart. And I think it is very significant that these sayings of Jesus are the first things that He said to His disciples after they were officially called and gathered. You would agree with me, I think, that first words are very important. The first words spoken, especially to a newly formed group, set the tone. They establish a direction. And so we should pay very careful attention to these sayings of Jesus, which He delivered at first to His disciples. Now, I think it must be acknowledged that these sayings of Jesus were not the first things that these disciples of Jesus had learned and believed. These men who followed Jesus, they knew the Old Testament Scriptures very well. And they knew the promises that God had made concerning a Savior or Messiah, who would eventually come into the world. They believed that Jesus was that Messiah that was promised long ago. And this is why they followed Him. And so it is not as if these men were novices. They they were not rookies, as it were. They were not uninformed. They were not ignorant men. They were men well acquainted with the Old Testament Scriptures and with the promises of God contained there. They thought Jesus was that Messiah. They knew Him to be the promised one. And so they followed after Him. They understood the storyline of Scripture and the history of God's work of redemption. And if I were to state it in theological terms, they had a very solid understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, man, covenant, sin, and salvation in Christ Jesus. These men were not uninformed. Did they have a lot to learn? We would say yes, in some ways they did. They had a lot to learn about Jesus the Messiah, how He would accomplish our redemption, and and the nature of the new covenant and the eternal kingdom that He came to inaugurate. So yes, they had a lot to learn, and indeed that story is told um, very directly in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts. These disciples were living in in a time of great transition, and as men living in a time of great transition, they had a lot to learn about the new thing that was uh, right before them. But they were by no means lacking in biblical and theological knowledge. Many of them possessed a true and lively faith. And so Jesus did not begin teaching His disciples as we typically do by providing answers to questions like these. 
Who is the first and chiefest being? Ought everyone to believe there is a God? How may we know there is a God? What is the word of God, etc.? You should probably notice that I am here quoting the first uh, number of questions within our catechism. Uh, Jesus did not need to begin here because these disciples knew who the first and chiefest of being was. God Almighty is the first and chiefest of beings, etc. And so he presented them with ethical teachings at first. He built upon the solid foundation that they already possessed. He brought them ethical teachings. He taught them about the attitude, outlook, and way of life that his followers were to adopt. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus demanded that his disciples see and know for certain that those who follow him are truly blessed. They are blessed even if they are hungry, poor, despised, and mistreated in the world. They are blessed because to them belongs the eternal kingdom of God. And in contrast to this, those who choose the riches of this world and the respect of others over Christ are truly in a woeful condition. They may be full now, but they will be eternally hungry. They may laugh now, but they will weep eternally. This is the opposite, of course, of how the world sees things, but Christ commands His followers to take this view, and this we learned in Luke 6, 20-26. And in Luke 6, 27-36, Jesus commands His followers to love even their enemies. Those in the world love their friends. Those in the world love those they consider to be lovely or worthy. The world hates its enemies and is accustomed to returning evil for evil, insult for insult, and blow for blow. But Christ commanded His followers to be different. Love your enemies, He says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. In Luke 6.35, Christ summarizes this marvelous teaching by saying, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Of course, this is all review, isn't it? And I've provided this review not only to remind you of what we have learned in the past couple of weeks, but so that you might see that Jesus continues to address the attitude or ethos of his disciples in the passage that is before us today. Can you see that Jesus is trying to establish a certain culture? Amongst his newly called disciples, they have their theological foundations, but as he gathers them to himself, he is trying to establish a certain kind of ethic or ethos amongst his disciples. He wants them to have a certain culture. They are to be joyous. They are to see themselves as eternally blessed. They are not to envy the world. They are to see that the world, even if they are very rich and prosperous, they are in fact in a woeful condition. This is, this is a culture thing that he is developing amongst his followers, isn't it? And then he says to them, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Again, it is an ethic or an ethos that he is establishing. And he continues to do this in the text that is before us today. We have heard him say, blessed are you. We have heard him say, love your enemies. Here Christ says, judge not 
and you will not be judged. This whole passage, which begins in Luke 6.37 and runs to the end of verse 45, is about the judgmental attitude that Christ forbids. Christ is here forbidding His disciples from having a judgmental attitude towards one another and even towards the world. In verses 37 and 38, we find four commands. Two are negative and two are positive. Judge not, condemn not, and then positively Christ says, forgive and give. So Christ's disciples are not to judge or condemn. They are to forgive and give. This is to be our attitude towards others. We are not to be judgmental or condemning. Instead, we are to be forgiving and generous. We are to be a people marked by graciousness and kindness. Notice that after each one of these commands, we find a general description of how we will be treated by others should we obey. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. In the second half of verse 38, we find a brief illustration concerning the charity and generosity that we are to show to others and the charity and generosity that will be returned to us. There's a a little brief uh, illustration here or word picture that Jesus uses. He says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. We are to picture here a merchant being generous with their customer. To give a modern example, one that I'm sure you'll all relate to, if you go to Rite Aid to buy a pint of ice cream, what are you thinking as the clerk fills up the container? What are you thinking? You're, you're thinking this, press it down. Press it down and fill it up to the brim. You probably don't say it out loud, at least you probably shouldn't. But you are hoping that the clerk is generous with you. If you were to purchase a bag of grain, you would be hoping that the merchant would shake it together so that the grain settles in the bag and you get more. If you were purchasing olive oil, you would want the merchant to fill the bottle up to the brim to the point of overflowing. And here Christ is calling His disciples to have this kind of generosity with others. I think it is right for us to see that this is an extension of the command to love even your enemies and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which we encountered in the previous passage. Christians are to love. Christians are to be generous. We are not to have a judgmental, condemning attitude towards others. Instead, we are called to be gracious and kind. We are to forgive. We are to give. And we are not to be stingy with our forgiveness and in our giving. Instead, we are called by Christ to be generous. We are to forgive and give abundantly in an overflowing kind of way. Remember, we are to be merciful, just as our Heavenly Father is merciful, as was stated in Luke 6.36. We are to treat others as we would like to be treated. And then Christ clearly states the principle of reciprocation with these words. You understand what I mean by the principle of reciprocation. With the measure you use, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, is what Christ says. So if you are generous, kind, forgiving, gracious with others, 
generally speaking, that's the way you're going to be treated by others. If you think the worst of others, it will probably be that people think the worst of you. If you think the best of others, it will probably be that people think the best of you. And so the teaching is very clear. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, generally speaking. The meaning is, is clear. In general, those who are generous to others will have others be generous with them. Those who, those who forgive others will tend to be forgiven. Those who give to others will often be given unto. But those who judge others harshly, and those who condemn others unfairly will find that they will be harshly judged and condemned. This principle of reciprocation will play out in our human relations, in our human relationships. And there is also a sense in which it will play out in our relationship with God. Do not forget what Christ says in the Lord's Prayer when He teaches uh, His disciples to pray, uh, Father, uh, forgive us as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then Christ in other places does warn that if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. And so this principle of reciprocation, I think it has mainly to do with human relationships. Those who are generous with others will often be shown generosity and kindness. But also there is a divine aspect to all of this as well, and God has a way of of accomplishing this, uh, even as we experience life in this world. God will richly bless those who are generous and kind to others. He will forgive those who forgive and abundantly give to those who give abundantly. And certainly this principle will play out in eternity. These teachings of Jesus, brothers and sisters, are very clear. I hope you would agree with me on this. They are, in fact, very clear. But some will muddy the clear waters of Jesus' pure teaching by pushing these saints into context they were not intended for. Judge not, Jesus says. Now, does this mean that there, is a that there is never a time for human judgment? Is a courtroom judge, for example, wrong to sentence a convicted criminal? Would the convicted criminal be right to quote the words of Jesus to the judge at his sentencing? Jesus says, judge not. So why are you judging me, judge? <laughs> That's absurd. This is not what Jesus has in view here. He does not have civil judgments in view here. In fact, uh, the scriptures elsewhere uh, do command that there is a certain kind of judgment that takes place within society. Justice is to be upheld. If you go to Genesis 9-6 and compare it with Romans 13, 1-7, you'll see that this teaching is very clear. There is a place for civil judgment. Justice must be upheld within society. There is a sense in which the teaching of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood uh, still stands. It always has. It always will until Christ returns to judge and make all things new. So he is not saying that there is never a place for human judgment when he says, judge not. If he is saying this, then we do have a contradiction in the Holy Scriptures. For in these passages that I've mentioned and others, God does give civil magistrates the authority to judge. And he calls them to do so according to truth and justice. And I might also ask you, is a pastor or church wrong to judge a professing Christian? in matters of church discipline. 
If this is your view, that all human judgment is forbidden because Jesus said, Judge not, then you have a big problem. For the same Jesus who said, Judge not, also said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. By the way, how can you do that if you do not judge in some sense? How can you even decide that someone has wronged you if you do not make some form of judgment in your mind about the situation? Christ goes on, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, put him out of the church. Do not have communion with him. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I will not take the time to exegete this text right now, but the point is this. This sounds like judgment, doesn't it? This is judgment. In fact, Christ uses legal language in this passage when He speaks of charges and witnesses and verdicts that are binding. So then, in one place, Christ commands His disciples to judge not But in another place, He commands them to judge. Do we have a contradiction? Certainly not. We have to pay attention to the sense of Jesus' words and to the context in which He delivers these teachings. And consider what Paul the Apostle says about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. At the conclusion of a lengthy passage on that theme, he says, "...for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge?" God judges those outside, and then He speaks to the church and says, Purge the evil person from among you. So here, Paul agrees with Jesus when he commands the Corinthians to judge the sinning and unrepentant church member and to purge the evil person from among them. So what is going on here? How can it be that the Scriptures command us to judge not in one place and to judge in another? Again, I will say it is all about context. Here in Luke 6, Jesus is addressing the mindset, the attitude, and disposition of His disciples. He is not forbidding all judgment, but He is forbidding a certain kind of judgment. Specifically, He is forbidding a judgmental spirit within His disciples. He is speaking to the measure with which they, that they are going to use. He is addressing their attitude. And I would make... A case, I think. I think I could make a case that the reason Jesus is saying this here to them, judge not lest you be judged, condemn not lest you be condemned, and he speaks of the issue of measure and reciprocation. Make sure you're using a generous measure with others. He is teaching them this because he knows that these disciples of his, and particularly the apostles, are going to have to judge. They're going to have to judge within the church. And so they had better do so in a Christ like way and in a way that is pleasing to their Father in heaven. Now, I was trying to think of how to add a little bit more clarity to this teaching, and five words came to mind, and all of them do start with the letter P. The first word is Pharisee. Here in this passage, Jesus forbids His disciples from having the judgmental attitude of the Pharisees. I wonder if you remember how some of the Pharisees treated Jesus and His disciples. We were told about this in the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 5. The Pharisees and their scribes, they kept a close eye on Jesus and His disciples. They watched and they waited for them to slip up so that they could accuse and condemn them. Can you picture the Pharisees? 
just kind of lurking around Jesus and His disciples, spying on them, as it were. And what are they doing? What attitude or mindset do they have? They are just waiting for Jesus and His disciples to slip up in their opinion so that they can accuse and condemn. Can you picture their attitude? Can you picture even their, their, their disposition, you know? Looking down on Jesus and His disciples with a judgmental eye. Uh, that is what we are to picture here when we consider Jesus' teaching on judgment. Their judgments, remember, were not according to God's law, but were according to their man-made rules and regulations. Their judgments were harsh. They were without love and mercy. These Pharisees even accused Jesus and His disciples of plucking grain on the Sabbath day so that they might satiate their hunger. They accused Jesus of wrongdoing when He dared to show mercy and kindness to a man with a withered hand. You see, this is a judgmental attitude that all who belong to Christ must avoid. We must avoid the attitude of the Pharisees. The second word that came to my mind is position or place. When Jesus says, judge not, He means that we are not to have a judgmental and condemning attitude leading us to judge others when it is not our position or place to do so. There are some things that only God can judge. Did you know that? There's a a kind of judgment that belongs to God alone. God alone sees the hearts of men, and God alone will fully and finally judge on the last day, condemning those not in Christ to eternal judgment. This He will do through Christ the Son. And it is not our place to judge and to condemn, as only God can. Position or place must also be taken into consideration in matters where humans are permitted and even called to judge. I want you to think of the criminal case. May humans judge in criminal cases? Well, we would say yes, but is it everyone's place to judge and condemn in a civil case? We would say, well, no. The police officer, the judge, the jury, the correctional officer all have a special role to play given their place or position, you see. Not everyone within society is called to do the same kind of work as it pertains to civil judgments. And consider the family as another illustration Whose place is it to judge and to discipline the children in the family? Typically, it is the mother and father's place. And the same could be said about the church. In matters of discipline, elders are called to lead and to oversee. And local churches are, for the most part, to mind their own business. If a child in another's family is rebellious, it is the mother and father's responsibility to judge and to discipline. And if a Christian in another congregation is sinning, whose position or place is it? To deal with that matter, it is not ours, but theirs. It is their position, it is their place to deal with the sinning church member in their congregation. The point here is that judgmental people will often stick their noses in other people's business and judge and condemn from afar when it is not their place to do so. So the words of Paul in Romans 14.4 come to mind where he says, "...who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another?" There he is dealing with a very particular situation, but the principle is stated, isn't it? There's a sense in which it's just sometimes not your place to get involved. It's their place. It's their responsibility, not yours. So mind your own business. Stay in your own lane. These are helpful sayings, I think. The third word is proportionate. Jesus forbids His disciples from judging and condemning in a disproportionate way. Judgmental people like the Pharisees who judged Jesus, tend to judge harshly, and they do so without mercy. 
They judged him, again I say, for healing on the Sabbath. How ridiculous is this? How dare you do this wonderful thing for this purpose on the Sabbath day? They judged him for plucking grain on the Sabbath. They were harsh in their judgments. They judged without mercy, all the while being blind to their own sin. The fourth word that came to my mind is pleasing. Jesus would have his disciples judge in a way that is pleasing to our God who delights to show mercy. If God is merciful even to His enemies, and if He has been so gracious to us to save sinners like us through faith in Christ Jesus, then how could we, who have been treated so kindly by our God, treat others with harshness? Christ speaks of this elsewhere. Um, He tells that one parable, for example, about the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a great deal by his master, but yet he would not forgive a fellow servant even just a little bit. And that ungrateful servant was very strongly condemned by our Lord in that parable. And so a judgmental and condemning spirit does not please our Lord, for we are called to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. The fifth word that came to my, that came to my mind is perception. Perception. Jesus forbids His disciples from judging without a clear perception or view of the sin. First, we must see our own sin clearly, and then we will be able to accurately perceive or see the sins of others, and then to judge with the right kind of judgment. Notice that the rest of this text is about perception or seeing. First, Christ warns against following teachers who are blind. After this, Christ warns His followers to take the log out of their own eye before they try to take the speck out of their brother's eye. And finally, Christ warns His disciples about judging the hearts and minds of others. For whether a man is good or evil will become clear, for men will be known by their fruit. The rest of this passage, which we are considering today, has to do with perception or seeing sin clearly. Before we go on to consider Jesus' instructions about judging with with clear sight or perception, I want to be sure that Jesus' command is settled in our minds and hearts. And so I will read again Luke 6, 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down. Shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so I say, may the Lord have mercy on us and help us to overcome our judgmental, critical, and condemning attitudes. May He give us the grace to be generous and kind, forgiving and merciful to others, just as our Father in Heaven is merciful. As I've said, the remainder of our passage is about perception. He, Christ, focuses His attention on the need for His disciples to have a clear perception of sin if they are to judge in a just and merciful way and to avoid the judgmental attitudes, the attitude of the Pharisees. First, we must see our own sin clearly and be humble and grateful to God for His grace. Only then will we be able to think rightly about the sins of others. First, Jesus warns His disciples about spiritual blindness. Those who are blind should not be followed. 
And if these disciples and apostles of His were to be good leaders in the church in the future, they would need to have a clear perception of sin, starting with their own. Otherwise, they would be like the Pharisees, who were harsh in their judgments. In verse 39 we read, He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The the meaning of the parable is very clear, isn't it? If someone is blind, they will need someone who can see to lead them. It is uh, this way with religious matters. If you want someone to teach you about true religion, about what it means to follow Christ, about what it means to worship God, you're going to want to follow someone who, who... understands these things, who has a clear view of of right doctrine, who has a clear understanding of sin and salvation in Christ Jesus. It's even true in matters of things like mathematics. If you want to learn math, you had better follow someone who has a clear understanding of of mathematics. Uh, This is just an obvious observation that Jesus puts before us here. And of course, it is the Pharisees who are in view It is the Pharisees who are in view. Jesus warns His disciples about spiritual blindness. He warns them not to follow those who are blind. And I think the suggestion is that the Pharisees are blind. What were they blind to? They were especially blind to the fact of their own sin. They were self-righteous individuals. They thought that they that they were right before God because of their piety, because of their own good works and holiness. And this, of course, did cause them to look down upon everyone else. And so the disciples of Jesus are warned not to follow teachers like these. And in verse 39 we read, He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind blind, uh, man? They'll both fall into a pit. He goes on uh, to say that a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Uh, If your teacher is blind, then you will be blind too. But if your teacher sees clearly, then you will see clearly too, once you are fully trained. That Jesus is warning against spiritual blindness, and particularly blindness concerning sin, is made very clear in verse 41, where he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. I think this is a very powerful picture that Jesus paints. I wonder if you can imagine someone with a large beam of wood stuck in their eye. It's actually kind of a ridiculous picture, isn't it? But that's the point. Can you picture someone walking around with a a large plank of wood sticking out of their eye, and this person is walking around not concerned with that, but he's concerned with the fact that others have little, little specks in theirs. It's a powerful image. It's a ridiculous image that is meant to get our attention here. Of course, the meaning is clear. He is condemning those who go around being concerned with other people's sin, with their, uh, we might say, minor faults, with their sins that are committed out of ignorance. Well, being totally unaware of the fact that they have great sins themselves. He is here warning us about moving forward with this kind of spiritual blindness. By the way, everyone knows that the eye is a very delicate part of the body. If someone has a speck in their eye, they will need help removing it. 
It's not a good idea to try to remove a speck out of your own eye, uh, because after all, you're having a hard time seeing clearly yourself. You're going to need help to remove that speck. The eye is so very delicate, great care must be taken. But the one who removes it will need to be very careful also. They will need a steady hand. They will need clear sight. And so it is when addressing the sin of another, great care must be taken. A steady hand is required. Certainly clear sight is needed. The one who has splinters or even a plank in his own eye is in no condition to help others with the speck that is in theirs. The only thing they should be concerned with is removing what is in their own eye. And only after that will they be able to see clearly to help others with what is in theirs. Now the Pharisees had beams of wood in their eyes. They were sinners in need of the Savior, but they did not see it. They thought they were righteous, and yet they spent their time looking for faults and sins in others. They were judgmental hypocrites. They were blind leaders, and so Jesus warned His hearers not to follow them or to be like them. The disciples of Jesus, and especially those who would lead within His kingdom, would need to live according to a different ethic. They would need to acknowledge their own sin from the beginning. As I've said before, no one can come to Christ and Savior unless they see their sin and their need for a Savior. And the disciples of Jesus will need to live a life of constant repentance, or to use the language of Jesus, His disciples will need to be primarily concerned with the logs and specks in their own eye. And only then will they be able to see and think correctly about the sins of others. It should not be difficult for you to understand how this works and how important this is within the Christian community. In the Christian life, we will have to deal with sin, our own sin and also the sin of others. We are called in the church to help one another with sin. We are to encourage and exhort one another to turn from sin. Sometimes we must even confront sin in others. In some instances when sin is not turned from, judgments must be made by the church with the elders of the church in the lead, as we have already considered from Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. And I want you just to imagine how different that process would be in a church that is filled with self-righteous, judgmental hypocrites in comparison to a church that is filled with men and women who are aware of their own sin, are humble and repentant themselves, and are filled with kindness, compassion, and love because they have experienced the kindness, compassion, and love of God. The church that is filled with or led by self-righteous, judgmental hypocrites will do great damage to others. Both will fall into the pit, is what Jesus said. But the church filled with and led by those who are more concerned with the log in their own eye than the speck in their brothers will be a great help to fellow sinners saved by the grace of God who are walking in the way. And so, I might ask you, do you wish to avoid the judgmental and condemning attitude that Jesus here forbids? Do you wish to avoid that judgmental attitude and condemning attitude that the Pharisees had? Do you wish to abundantly forgive and generously give as Christ commands us to do here? Do you wish to have a clear view of the sin of others so that you might actually help them along the way? Then, focused first 
on the log that is in your own eye. And only then, only after we are aware of our own sin and the great mercy and grace of God that has been shown to us, will we be able to see clearly to take out the speck that is in our brother's eye. Now there is one last section for us to consider today. It's a very famous passage. And I do suppose that it could be considered all by itself. But I see a connection here. I see a connection here to the theme of judgment, which we have been considering. In verse 43 we read, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The general principle being taught here by our Lord is that the words of men and women and the actions of men and women will flow from the heart. If a person's heart is good and pure, it will produce good, pure, and holy words and deeds. But if the heart of a person is evil, it will naturally produce evil words and deeds. This is what Christ means when He speaks of trees and their fruit. Trees with good roots and sap will produce good fruit. But trees that are diseased in the root and sap will produce diseased fruit. And if you are uncertain about what kind of tree you are dealing with, as you examine the trunk, the branches, and the leaves, you are sure, you're going to be sure about what it is once you examine its fruit. An apricot and a peach tree might have a similar appearance, at least to the novice. But all will know the difference between them once they bear fruit. You will say, ah, I see this is a peach tree. Why? Because there are peaches on it. And that one is an apricot tree because there are apricots on it. You see, Christ's teaching here is very clear. And His teaching here does help us to understand how human behavior works. It's very important for us to understand that our our words and our actions do flow from the heart. Therefore, true and lasting change will take place in us only when the mind and heart are changed. There are so many people living in this world who try to change their behavior. But they try to change their behavior only by trying to change their behavior. And they might change for a time. They might try to, to by the strength of their will, talk differently or act differently. And indeed, it might produce a, tempor- a temporary change in them. But they're going to revert back to their, own, their old ways if their hearts and if their minds are not transformed by the grace of God, you see. Because the life of a man, the life of a woman, flows from the heart. This is so important for us to see. True and lasting change will take place in us only when the mind and heart are changed. And the Christian is changed and begins to walk in a new and holy way. Why? Because God, by His grace, has renewed them in the inner man through Christ the Son and by the Spirit. This renewal that I am here talking about takes place within the mind and the heart and it happens before we even trust in Jesus. It happens before we even trust in Christ. It is called regeneration or we might say new birth. And this renewal continues throughout the Christian life. This 
progressive and ongoing renewal is called sanctification. Real and lasting change takes place only when we are renewed in the inner man. And this renewal is by the grace of God alone. It is His gift to us. Christ's teaching about good and bad trees producing good and bad fruit helps us to see this. But what does this teaching have to do with judgment? I have said that it connects to the theme that is here in our passage. What does this teaching have to do with judgment? I think we have here a warning to not judge the hearts of men. To not judge their thoughts and their intentions as if we could see them. God alone can see the heart, brothers and sisters. Do not forget that. But what can we see? What can we perceive? Well, we can perceive and judge people's words and their deeds. And here I think Jesus is warning His disciples to not try to judge the hearts of men. But He tells them, listen, in due time you will know what they are. You will know what they are in due time by examining what? Their fruit. By examining their fruit. And so as sinners turn from sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, they are to be received into the church according to the public profession of faith that they make. Do they know Jesus truly? Is their faith authentic? Is their repentance true? See, you're talking about matters of the heart there, aren't you? We don't know. We'll never know for sure. Does God know? Yes, God knows. So how... How can we judge whether or not someone is a Christian? We have to go off of what they say and how they are living. Are they making a credible profession of faith with their lips? And does that profession of faith seem to be accompanied by a change, a walking in the way, a more or less holy lifestyle, you see? Or is their way of life contradicting their profession of faith? So I think Jesus is here warning His disciples to not judge the minds and hearts of others because they cannot see the minds and hearts of others. And this is so very important in matters of church discipline as well, brothers and sisters. I can tell you there have been a number of times where the elders of this church have just stopped and have said, Lord, something is not right. We don't know what it is. Would you make it plain? Would you make it clear as to what is going on here in the life of this individual or with these people? Would you make it plain? Would you make it clear? Because we can't see into the mind or the heart of this individual. We have concerns, but would you make it plain? And do you want to know something? The Lord tends to make it plain in due time. For bad trees are going to bear bad fruit, and good trees will bear good fruit. And that is what we are to examine within the church. The fruit, not the hearts, of men and women. So I think this is about judgment too. This teaching of Jesus to judge not does not mean that there is never a time for judgment. Instead, the thing condemned here is a judgmental attitude. And I would make an argument that Jesus is bringing this teaching to His disciples and especially to His apostles because they are going to have to be careful in this very thing in the future. They're going to have to lead within Christ's church. They're going to have to lead within Christ's kingdom. And indeed, this will involve making judgments that are just and right and true, judgments that are merciful, gracious and kind. They are being called to be patient leaders within the church, sympathetic leaders, knowing that they themselves are sinners saved by grace. They are to help others who are walking on the way. I'll move this sermon towards a conclusion by offering just a few reflections on the text that we have considered. 
The teaching of Jesus to judge not is vital to the Christian community. A church will not thrive, indeed it will likely not survive, if it has a judgmental spirit. If a church is filled with people who have a judgmental condemning spirit, that church is going to devour itself from the inside. This is not hard to see, is it? And so we must put away this judgmental and condemning spirit. Instead, we must be ready to forgive, and we must be ready to give to one another. We must think what is best, brothers and sisters, not what is worse. The judgmental spirit will also hinder the spread of the gospel, will it not? What is the gospel message except the good news that God has been merciful, gracious, and kind to sinners to provide a Savior? We must preach that gospel. We must call people to faith and repentance. And then we must receive those who respond. You see, a judgmental spirit will hinder the spread of the gospel because instead of being like Jesus who was willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, remember, and to call the sick to repentance as that great physician of their souls, they, a church with a judgmental spirit will be more like the Pharisees who stand aloof and look down on everyone, you see. It's incompatible with the gospel, brothers and sisters, this judgmental, condemning spirit. And so we must do away with it if we have it in our hearts. A judgmental spirit will also hinder sanctification. And when I speak of sanctification, I'm talking about growth in Christ. The Lord progressively sanctifies us. He makes us more and more holy, more and more into the image of Christ. And do you want to know something? That, pro- that process is sometimes a battle, isn't it? And we need one another in this battle. As we all struggle with sin, as we're at different levels in our growth in Christ, we need to be patient, gracious, loving, and kind with one another. We need to be forgiving so that we might help one another along the way. A judgmental spirit will hinder sanctification. And certainly a judgmental spirit will stifle love. We are to be known by our love. Has Christ not just commanded this? We are to love even our enemies. Especially we are to have love for one another. But a judgmental spirit will stifle love. Lastly, a judgmental spirit will not bring glory to our God, who is merciful, gracious, and kind. We are called to be like Him. He is a God who delights to show mercy. And so we also must delight to show mercy. Mercy even to our enemies, and especially mercy and grace to one another must be extended. I say it is no wonder that Jesus presented this teaching to His disciples soon after calling them. The judgmental spirit of the Pharisees was a great threat to them. And so Jesus warned them, Judge not and you will be not judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would strengthen your church, strengthen us individually and as a congregation. I pray that you would help us to grow more and more in our understanding of the Holy Scriptures so that we would have sound doctrine, O Lord. Help us as we assemble for worship, that we would worship according to to what your word says, that we would be faithful in worship, O Lord. Make us strong in these things, but I pray that you would also give us this culture, give us this ethic, O Lord, that Christ has commanded, that we would not only be sound in doctrine and right in worship, but rich in love, in grace, and in mercy. O Lord, help us to be generous with one another and not withholding. 
God, I ask that you would cause each one of us to grow in Christ and help us to help one another. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things and all of God's people say, Amen.